0: I went out for dinner earlier this year with a few friends. It was a special occasion just after my birthday. So we went to a steak restaurant. Uh, it's called uh, La Re de Veni. There's a few of these, a handful in London, I think a couple in France. Um, it's a pretty simple concept. There's, well, you sit down, and they give you, uh, they give you this uh, plate of uh, chips and steak with a special sauce. You finish your food. The waiter comes back. This is kind of a surprise if it's your first time there because then they give you the exact same thing again. Uh, The chips, the steak, the special sauce. There isn't a vegetarian option. Um, There aren't any other options. There isn't a menu. It's really good. I mean, I really, yeah, this is is kind of relevant, I promise. Um, So there are no choices with the steak um, but the dessert menu. Uh, there, there is definitely a dessert menu, 17 items. I had the cheesecake. My friend had the uh, profiteroles. I had like proper FOMO. Uh, but check this out. You see the underlines. So I didn't, I didn't know what those were. I had to ask the waiter what those were. Um, three items have red underlines. Uh, three have blue. Uh, the red items are the three most popular chocolate desserts. And the blue items are the most popular without chocolate. And I think when Apple finally get around to making like their augmented reality glasses or something, like this is the first app I want, like in restaurants and bookshops and uh, and all the rest. But like think about what's going on here, right? Like there are the usual considerations like price or am I in the mood for ice cream? But then it becomes almost like an internal dialogue, right? Like is it a chocolate day today? Um, there's an interesting consideration. like the popular items are probably the best ones. But if I only ever went with the most popular things, uh, I would never step out my comfort zone. So like, maybe today is the high risk, high reward day. And then again, maybe the popular items aren't the best ones. They're the best ones for the majority. But like, am I the majority? Right? Like I'm a Mac user, right? Like we think different. <laughs> and I'm here with my friends, right? And they're going to judge me. Like I want them to think like, Matt's the kind of guy who like, doesn't go with the herd. So like, do I have this reputation of being quirky? Like, Everything is about presentation itself. Like, dessert is a performance. I, I think maybe we'd had a bit too much red wine by this point. And I'm like overthinking the dessert menu. But like, interacting with a dessert menu is a conversation. Right? There's this dialogue that takes place. On the other hand, I absolutely do not get any of that conversation with these Google search results. I'm not saying they're not well put together. Like Google consider like 200 different signals to figure out the ranking order. There's the feedback loop of other people who have done the same search. It's a social recommendation in that way. But do I want news, or do I want to build understanding? Am I doing search or research? Do I want the consensus view, or like something that challenges me? Uh, you can use Google to find all of those things, but you have to already know that that's what you are looking for. So those 200 factors aren't exposed to start to start the dialogue. It's made decisions already on my behalf. It's a bit more like the steak non-menu than the dessert menu. Like, so search results have taken over the world. Uh, this is Twitter, right? It's where I get my news and like new articles. I, you know, one of my jobs is I write for a living. So a new input is what I need. And sure, I choose who to follow. But when something is chosen to appear in the algorithmic timeline um, or in a trending section, it isn't the beginning of that kind of conversation. More search results. And um, this is DALI, um, OpenAI's image synthesis AI. I've typed in a query, a prompt, and a variety of images have been created. I can click on any image and generate more variations. And it feels very much like using a search engine. If they hadn't told me there was an AI behind this, uh, the experience of it is very much like using Getty Images, right? And again, it's not even as good as that restaurant dessert menu at starting a dialogue between me and the machine. You know, instead of making a guess to fill in the blanks in my prompt, it could give me the top two clusters of very different results and ask me to choose one and tell me what would have nudged me in that direction. That way, I would learn more about the AI and how to get those results next time. It could let me adjust to temperature. The temperature is the amount of randomness that the AI puts in. So weirdly, I have a better mental model of the pastry section at a steak restaurant than I do about this piece of software, this kind of AI I'm using to generate these images. It didn't have to turn out this way. Back in the 90s, it was thought that we would interact with computers in a more interactive way. Right? So, this is from a paper called Scatter Gather, a Cluster Based Approach to Browsing Large Document Collections, presented in uh, 1992 by Douglas Cutting and uh, some others. It's an interactive search algorithm. This is the, um, the UI. It's not wildly different, right? I'm not presenting like arcane ancient knowledge, but it's a different starting point. So, I think it is worth looking at, right? So, let me show you how it works. This is the UI to explore well, any big selection of documents an encyclopedia, the New York Times. Actually, this is it being used to explore the New York Times from August 1990. So what happens is the computer takes the whole set of articles and it scatters them into clusters. So it's automatically done with natural language processing, and they're automatically named. And so the biggest clusters are education, domestic, Iraq, art, sport, oil, Germany, legal. And then what the user does is they perform the gather step, and they choose here Iraq. Oil, Germany. The computer brings all those documents together and then re-scatters them. Deployment politics, and you can kind of see that it's not like we've zoomed in, right? Like it's not like we've zoomed in on just Iraq, oil, Germany, and found the overlap. Like Pakistan is in that list. Hostages are in the list, and then and then the uh, the process happens again. So again, let's kind of think about what's going on here, right? Like I'm being taught how the New York Times sees the world. My future searches are going to be better because of that. I'm clarifying what I mean. I'm able to say, yes, kind of like that, but also this. Uh, Like I'm zooming in, but also I'm kind of widening my perspective and exploring simultaneously. I'm getting a picture of what was happening that month. And I'm learning, right? In the paper, they don't call this search, Uh, they call it a knowledge quest. Computers used to be much cooler. But building knowledge is a conversation. And this is key, I think, is that they gave the algorithm a name, scatter gather. It has an identity. The algorithm is an agent, uh, an agent, uh, a computational entity that cooperates with the user in the service of information gathering tasks. An agent, something you relate to. To be more specific, this is what the cognitive scientist Tom Stafford calls an epistemic agent, epistemic to do with knowledge. So it's a, an agent that helps you build knowledge. He points out that 30 years after Scattergather, uh, we didn't end up with the future of epistemic agents. I don't use computers by like interacting with agents that build knowledge with me in different ways. Or rather, Tom continues, we did, but they're hidden. The knowledge guides are still with us, but now they're invisible guides. They're deeply embedded in software. You know, In Google, to tell me about the world's knowledge. In Twitter, to tell me what's happening right now. In Dali, to tell me about the latent space of AI. Uh, and their goal is to make me happy in one shot. But their goal is not to teach. Their goal is not to improve my abilities uh, to search and develop my knowledge. And OK, we say, maybe there's a good reason for that. right? Maybe interacting with computational agents is slow. Maybe it requires expertise. Maybe things like Google and Twitter and Dali, by hiding their agents, are more accessible. Maybe it makes computing more democratic. But no, I think if we think that, I think we have a failure of the imagination. And because yes, scattergather looks like it's made for librarians, but let me show you one more example of how we can interact with algorithms. So Pac-Man came out in 1980. I just about, you can tell by my grey hair, I just about remember playing with it, looking at the audience. I think most of you will have encountered it like in hipster bars, like embedded in tables. Um, So there's a remake for smartphones, which is super fun. Anyway, you control the little guy in the middle. You run round the maze eating dots. The four ghosts are chasing. And if they catch you, they eat you. That's the game. The computer controls the ghosts. And their names are Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and Clyde. So get this. The four ghosts represent four AIs. Each one embodies a different pursuit algorithm. Blinky, the red ghost, chases Pac-Man by the most direct route. This is all from the amazing Pac-Man dossier, by the way, from 2009, which is super long and details how the game works. Totally recommend it. Pinky, uh looks at where you're going and targets where Pac-Man is going to be. So in that way, it performs an ambush. It's incredible how these really simple differences make like character, right? It's because you're all in the same labyrinth. There's a common ground. so these things are not just algorithms now they're that they're, they're, they're like agents that you're interacting with. Inky includes logic that coordinates with Blinky, uh, so it kind of makes a pincer movement. And Clyde creates a false sense of security by not doing anything until you're within eight tiles, and then goes by the most direct route. So the Japanese uh, names for the ghosts are poetic descriptions of the algorithms. So Clyde is called uh, Otoboki, which means pretending ignorance, pragmatically. This is some uh, gorgeous work by uh, Julius Breitenstein called Sprut. Um, It's a navigation app. And Julius's observation was that there are 100 different ways to get from A to B. And maybe the agent that makes a decision about how we navigate from A to B could be turned into a character. And that way, you could build a mental model about what it's trying to do. So this one is called Sightseer, which only takes you on really good walking routes. I know it sounds like I am saying we should turn our agents into little personalities. Like, Clippy returns from the grave, right? I am absolutely not saying that. Anthropomorphization can be effective, but computers are computers, and the user interface on a screen has much higher bandwidth uh, than a voice dialogue, right? Because we can use the screen as a kind of a, a visual cache for our working memory. It's a kind of like a cognitive prosthesis. So, like, we kind of don't need these kind of little you know, buddy agents for everything. What I am saying is that we should design computers as if there is a dialogue taking place, right? And do our best to let users learn and build expertise. And yes, expose the algorithm because we're on a knowledge quest the whole time. And sorry, this is kind of a cheap shot. Um, And if anybody from Facebook is here, I'm really sorry, I don't really mean it. The reason all of this matters is because the future of our interfaces looks more like cooperative agents, not less. So this is the imaging Flowrite, which is a service built on top of GPT-3, which is by OpenAI, who later went on and made Dali. And it integrates with your email, among other tools. What you do is you type a summary of what you want, and it auto-expands into four sentences. Again, you can see there's an invisible agent here. but you can, And you can see it acts like a really long search query. You provide the prompt. It comes back with the answer. And of course, the agent has a personality you know it has a tone of voice. maybe they should expose that more but it's a dialogue, right it's interactive. you can change the prompt you can edit the text afterwards um Gary Kasparov is uh, a former grandmaster chess champion. he was the first chess champion to be beaten by an AI um he was he beat ibm's chess computer in ninety six it beat him in ninety seven that was it so long humanity and he observed that. After then, the great chess champions became a combination of humans and AI. Uh, The the chess masters would train their own AIs, uh, learn from them, use them in training, and become better chess players because of that. And he came up with a word to describe this, centaurs, named after the mythical being which is half human, half horse. right? And for Kasparov, the human part on top is steering. It's creative, it's intuitive, it's empathetic. It sits on top of the horse, the computer, that has the infinite memory and the brute force calculation. And yes, in the process, the the human learns. What Flowrite shows is that this is the interface of the future. This is the uh, combined model of interacting with computers. The interaction is a journey of learning and building knowledge, uh, this combined conversation. And actually, when you look closer, you can see this already happening. Um, I showed you the interface to DALI earlier. It looks like a search back. You get back results. But look at how people actually use it. Right? Here's a blog post of somebody who used it to design their logo. And as you read it, um, they show all their steps. And you can see them learning about how the AI works. You can see them surprising themselves when one of the variations isn't quite what they expect and doing something different. You can see them building expertise. You can see by the end of the article, even though they're not a designer, they've become a design center. It's so powerful. So for designing a logo, as it is for finding furniture for your house or finding new clothes to wear online, as a user, you often literally don't know what to do to begin with. So if you are a designer in this audience, please remember your user's goal is not to find answers. It's to build knowledge and how to ask the right questions, both zooming in and finding new possibilities. Search is not a query. It's always a conversation. And if that means inventive new epistemic agents, then then do that, because you're not building search engines. You're building tools for your user to embark on a knowledge quest. For everyone else, I want to just give you something concrete to try. I talked earlier about getting my news from Twitter and doing my research on Google. That's not true. I lied about that. I do not. What I do instead is I read continuously and widely. And every time I find a site I like, I look for this word, feed. That's my blog, by the way, small plug. Um, Or RSS feed, or web feed. And then I copy the link, uh, that web address, and I subscribe for free in an application that just collects those feeds and brings them to my computer on my behalf. This is, um, I use an application called NetNewsWire. There are tons available. Um, They're often free. Most sites on the web have an RSS feed. It's the first app I open in the morning before Twitter, before any of my emails or socials. And over the years, I've subscribed to 345 different feeds. If you go to my site and scroll to the bottom, I have links to them all there. And what I get is unfiltered by algorithms, right? It's the secret, honestly, it's the secret that means I can bring new ideas into my work every day. I'm not making search queries. I'm on my own continuous knowledge quest. Maybe you could do the same. If you want to learn more, I made a little site which explains how RSS works at aboutfeeds.com. Anyway, thank you very much.